Hello and welcome to The Recovery, a new podcast with people working to make healthcare more sustainable. Produced by Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare and co-published with the BMJ. I'm Ray Moynihan from Bond University in Australia and I'm very happy to introduce my co-host, Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Thanks, Ray. So today on this first episode of The Recovery, we have a frank and sometimes funny conversation with two Australian professors, Rochelle Bookbinder and Ian Harris. They tell us about their efforts to wind back tests and treatments that are useless or harmful. And they even delve into a little witchcraft. Ray, you're Australian and perhaps, I don't know, a witch as well. Tell us about our guests. Well, Ian Harris is a very unusual orthopaedic surgeon, Fiona. He's famous for pointing out that a lot of what surgeons do is unnecessary. Rochelle Bookbinder, who I'm lucky enough to work with closely, is a rheumatologist. And for a long time, she's rigorously investigated this problem of too much medicine and how to fix it. And as we'll hear, she's faced a shocking backlash as a result. The pair have just released a new book called Hypocrisy, how Doctors Are Betraying Their Oath, which covers many examples of medical tests and treatments that are commonly overused. There are lots and lots of examples, and there are lots of examples in the area that Ian and I work in, which is musculoskeletal health. Uh, So, for example, for back pain, we know there's far too much imaging, uh, and imaging causes downstream harms. There's too much prescription of opioid um, drugs. There's too much surgery. There are too many spine injections. Uh, And many of these things have have been already proven to to be of no benefit and so they can only cause harm. Uh, And that's just in our area of medicine. Um, But there are examples from many other areas as well. The often quoted figure is that that maybe a third of what we do is unwarranted and probably another 10% is actually harmful. Uh, so that, that's putting it into context with, with what we do do that may be of high value. That's, that's one of the things that has always fascinated me is that the harms from medical interventions are so high. Uh, you know, they've been variously reported over the years. But that never seems to trigger anything. It doesn't seem to alarm people. You know, people are watching COVID numbers day by day, and uh, uh, but you show them the numbers of, of uh, um, harms and deaths from um, medical interventions, and it's a it's a shrug of the shoulders. It's people see it, I think, as the as the price we pay of having such. Uh, great health care, but it's it's not because uh, a lot of it comes from unnecessary care. And what about the, the harms of um, how overuse diverts resources uh, from other aspects of medical care that might be more effective and, and less harmful? Yeah, it's the it's the opportunity cost or, or whatever. It's the, It's not only are we wasting um, money, but that money could be better spent on effective health care where people are being underserviced. And so we have this imbalance. And particularly in Australia, we see it because we have this two-tiered health system where um, in the private sector, uh, patients are getting over-treated. And in the public sector, many patients are are waiting too long for beneficial treatments. And I guess we also cover in the book that, that 
what is just being increasingly noted is that there's also an environmental impact or cost uh, and and that that's really magnified further if you consider unnecessary care so not only are we not helping patients we're harming the environment and we're and that impacts on the health of everybody uh, so so it's really an urgent problem but, but what on earth is driving this? I mean, people will be thinking about their GP or their specialist and thinking, that person's not trying to harm me. That's, that's the person that I trust and I go to and rely on for the care I need. That's a great question. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's financial. You know, it's people are just doing things for the money, doing things for the money. Now, there is evidence that financial incentives do affect rates of interventions. So we're not saying that that isn't part of the problem, but I don't think it's the big part of the problem because I believe that, you know, most doctors are well-intentioned. You know, they don't wake up thinking that they're going to do an operation just for the cash, uh, even though they know it doesn't work. That, that isn't really the way they think. By and large, um, doctors believe what they do to be effective, and that's part of the problem, and we address that by talking about the lack of science in medicine, the lack of um, understanding of, of principles of evidence-based medicine, um, and also the thinking that, um, you know, you have to do something. So when someone comes to see you with, with back pain or, or a condition that may be better off not being treated at all or just wait and see, uh, doctors feel like, well, I've, I've got to do something. The patient wants the doctor to do something. The the uh, hospital wants turnover. Um, the the patient's friends will say to them, "Oh, you really should get that done. You know, you really. Why don't you just get the operation?" Everybody, it's in everybody's interests to um, intervene. It's not in many people's interests to say, I, "I think you're better off if we just don't do anything." It just doesn't sit well with with doctors when you know sometimes. That's the best thing to do. So this is um, such an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because um, it, it, it seems to me, listening to you both, that there's an enormous part of this which has to be about communication and maintaining trust because, uh, as you say, patients come with their, their suffering and want a solution and um, doctors need to be able to be brave, say that there's nothing that can be done and that, that things that could be done might be harmful uh, and, and maintain the patient and public trust. Exactly. And, and I think that's that's the big challenge um, it, is trying to get doctors and the public to understand about science and evidence and, and what we can do and what we can't do and and the self-limited nature of a lot of things that, that will just get better irrespective of how they're treated. So, Rochelle and Ian, um, you, you've, you've both documented examples of medical excess, uh, but you've also been working to wind it back. Um, perhaps first to you, Rochelle, can you tell us a bit about uh, your efforts to tackle the overuse of uh, vertebroplasty, uh, the spinal procedure. And, and for those who don't know what that is, could you briefly describe it? Sure. So vertebroplasty is a treatment that was introduced in the late 1980s, I think now, 
to as a treatment for acute fractures in the spine. Uh, and the procedure is the injection of cement uh, that's injected either by a radiologist or at surgery into the fracture, and that's meant to fix the fracture, uh, leading to resolution of pain and and uh, and cure, basically. Um, the problem is that it was introduced into practice before there was high-quality evidence that it actually worked. And... It was only when placebo-controlled trials were performed that it, it turned out that it actually was no better than not using the cement uh, and that there were lots of potential harms from it. How do you do a placebo-controlled trial when you're talking about a surgical intervention of that scale? So there's the out, out, we did a trial and our trial involved um, placebo where the patient received absolutely everything that the people who received the real treatment received. So they were mildly sedated. They had local anaesthetic uh, injected into their back and the soft tissues down to the bone. Uh, and then they had a little incision made in the, in the skin and a needle was put down to the bone. Uh, and uh, instead of uh, going through the bone and injecting the cement, the people in the placebo group received two things that people with vertoplasty remember afterwards. And one is that they remember the tapping on the spine. So we used a little hammer and tapped on the needle uh, after taking out the, the, the sharp part of the needle. And the other thing that they remember is the cement smell because it's a very pungent smell. So we opened up the cement in the in the room so people could smell it. I must admit that I thought probably it, it worked, but maybe the harms would outweigh the benefits. Uh, so, so, you know, gradually over time, it took quite a while to do the trial. And by the time we looked at the results, you know, we were we were really quite shocked to see that there was no benefit and, and the the benefit in terms of pain and, and all the outcomes that we looked at was actually exactly the same in both groups. You then led the Cochrane Systematic Review of, of the studies, uh, I guess, including your own. Um, and the conclusion was exactly that what you said, that there was no benefit. Um, but it was the, the review was quite heavily criticised, um, including in a paper in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, um, uh, one of our one of our sister journals, which raised criticism of the review and cited evidence um, about benefits for some patients with very severe and painful spinal fractures. And I seem to remember it was also a question about how quickly you intervene, that a very acute intervention is better than in patients um, who may have had a, a few weeks of, of symptoms. Uh, without going into too much detail, can you address those criticisms? How, how, how did they come across and what's your view of them? Sure, it's important to remember that there are now six placebo-controlled trials. Uh, we, we could not find any difference in effect according to duration of symptoms um, or any other factor that we looked at. Uh, and, 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 and it's important to note that this as I said before, that this, this condition can get better very quickly, irrespective of treatment. Thanks, Rochelle. And Ian, um, you have also had some success in reducing the number of unnecessary arthroscopies 
uh, a very common procedure. Again, can you talk about that and, and explain what arthroscopy involves? Yeah, arthroscopy is uh, one of the most common surgical procedures uh, in the world and certainly one of the most common orthopedic procedures. It's what most people would call keyhole surgery. It involves just a few small incisions in the knee where we can insert a camera and other uh, pieces of equipment to cut out or uh, repair or remove um, uh, structures that are causing a problem. But the most common reason for having an arthroscopy is a torn cartilage or technically a torn meniscus. And the most common reason to have a torn meniscus is because it is degenerative. It's, it's wearing out. It's, it increases with, with age and um, osteoarthritis and other degenerative changes in the knee. So that's, that's very common. So it's very common for somebody um, over the age of 40 or 50 to have pain in the knee it's also very common for them to have some degenerative changes and it's very common for them to have an MRI scan that shows a degenerative tear in a meniscus. And not all of those things are necessarily associated, but the uh, the reflex kicks in, I think, when doctors see a patient with pain and then they see a scan with a finding, they tend to be very human about it and, and assign cause and effect to the two. Um, and what has driven the procedure over the last 40 years to be so popular is this uh, unscientific but very human response of operating on people with these tears and removing part of the meniscus or the, the torn part and seeing that sometime afterwards a lot of the patients say they feel better. And then we ascribe that improvement to the surgery. And what alerted me to the problem was early in my practice when I used to do a lot of knee arthroscopies um, and take out a lot of torn menisci is that I have largely a public practice and so my patients often have to wait a few months to get to surgery. And the number of patients I was seeing on the morning of surgery saying, you know, how are you? How are you going? Uh, they would say, good. And I'd say, oh, how's the knee? Oh, it's fine. Yeah, no problems, <laughs> you know. And, and I'd say, well, oh, well, do you, like, why are you here? Like, do you still want to go ahead with the surgery? Oh, better off just getting it done anyway. And um, uh, that kind of attitude. And it made me think, hang on a minute, I, I'm not sure that these people really need this surgery how many of them would get better if i didn't do the surgery um and unfortunately even though arthroscopy became popular in the 80s and by the 90s it was definitely commonplace um it wasn't until you know decades later that high quality placebo trials were done um comparing doing it to not doing it You're listening to Professor Ian Harris from the University of New South Wales and Professor Rochelle Bookbinder from Monash University. And once those trials of arthroscopy that Ian was talking about were done, they showed that for older people with osteoarthritis, arthroscopy didn't seem to have much benefit at all compared with sham surgery. And then Cochrane reviews summarising those trials confirmed that finding, making the evidence of no benefit really very compelling. And based on that evidence, Ian Harris and colleagues designed a very simple intervention within their Australian hospital that ended up halving the number of these inappropriate knee operations. 
we did a local intervention which which caught on where we said to the surgeons at our hospitals um, that they could do as many knee arthroscopies as they wanted. They just had to get approval from the head of department first. Uh, interestingly, the head of department said he couldn't be bothered looking through the notes and he would approve anybody who requested to do a knee arthroscopy. But just putting that hurdle in basically stopped the knee arthroscopies from being done because I think it was just a signal to the surgeons that that look, this, this doesn't work and if you, if you want to do it, you're going to have to jump through a little hurdle uh, to get it done. And, and so the surgeons just didn't bother jumping through the hurdle because I think they knew that it was a waste of time and it, it didn't work. Um, and that, that kind of spread. So unfortunately, practice change doesn't change with the publication of a great scientific article. Practice change occurs through social uh, phenomena. Uh, it occurs when people see that someone else has done it and then they think it's okay for them to do it and then thought leaders start changing things and then the people that listen to them at a, at a conference start changing things. And so unfortunately, practice change in surgery at least occurs by line of sight. It doesn't occur by uh, scientific message alone. I think the problem, and again, sorry, I mainly speak about surgery, is that the option of not operating just seems so unattractive to surgeons. Um, so in cases where you've said, oh, that operation doesn't work very well, you should do this operation instead, surgeons change over straight away. There's no problem at all. If that's what the evidence says, they'll do that one instead. But when you say to surgeons, that operation doesn't work and you shouldn't do anything, it's a very hard sell. The problem with arthroscopy like vertoplasty is that the harms are going to outweigh the benefits. We, we're just about to submit our updated Cochrane review on arthroscopy for uh, knee disorders, degenerative disease, uh, and we now have um, moderate quality, moderate certainty evidence that arthroscopy probably increases the rate of the rate of progression of osteoarthritis and also increases um, further knee surgery. So it, it causes not just, there's not just the perioperative risks, uh, it doesn't cause benefit, but down the track it probably also causes harm. I agree with Ian that, that doctors generally want to do good, um, but there are lots of other vested interests in medicine uh, where the bottom line is is money, uh, and I, I don't think we can avoid that. And I think that strategies that reduce their influence um, really need to happen and need to happen soon. So there needs to be policy changes that prevent it happening. Like, you know, you wouldn't think of introducing a new drug into practice unless it's been properly evaluated anymore, um, and that was thanks to disasters like thalidomide. And I think the same things need to happen now with tests and and inter other more invasive interventions. So what about the, the pushback uh, that you've, you've both experienced, I guess, in different ways, but how hard has it been for you to challenge the status quo? Yeah, at times it's been incredibly hard uh, to be harassed, have daily phone calls from people harassing you, to have emails telling you to put your head in a microwave oven, uh, to, to tell you um, 
that, you know, they hope I get a fracture and then get denied having viroplasty. Um, I think, you know, I've learnt to to cope with it, but I certainly never used to have problems with anxiety. I never used to have panic attacks, um, but those became quite regular for a long time. Um, so I think it is personally hard. Um, but in the morning I get up and go, well, you know, they're harming patients. I can't allow that to happen. I have to stand up for the evidence. And, again, the way I approach it is, is to try and not take it personally um, and to try and, uh, you know, present the evidence in a, as clear a way as I can. Um, and and the more that I talk about it, the more I know that it just it, that it happens all the time. It, it hasn't just happened to me. Uh, it's happened to lots of other people. Uh, the people that have harassed me have 100% been men uh, and so I can't help but think that there is a gender component to it but I don't know that for sure because um, people like Ian have also been harassed. Uh, I've even been accused of being a witch. It seems that I've bewitched Ian and I've got Ian under my spell uh, and he's no longer a free thinking surgeon um, but just does whatever I tell him to do. <laughs> and is that, is that the what case? Power you <laughs> what, what power? And is that the case? That's it. It's, 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 it's true because Rochelle is normally <laughs> right. I've, I've, I've learned that, that Rochelle is rarely wrong. So. <laughs> that's that's being too kind, Ian. You're always telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I get asked this question a lot and say, you know, how do you get along with your colleagues and what do your, you know, fellow surgeons say and things like that. I, I must admit that personally I have not had a problem and my usual answer to this is that I haven't really been challenged to my face. Now, I, I know that, that I have my detractors, um, but they tend not to challenge me much to my face. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, because I'm a surgeon or, or what. And I don't know if it's a, a gender issue or a, um, the fact that Rochelle was not a surgeon or a combination of things. Um, but I have, I have seen that and I tend to be, uh, you know, somehow immune from that and I'm not sure if it's because I'm six foot four and a, um, a male. Given what you've told us um, I'm sure listeners will be uh, amazed and 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 you know perhaps horrified at what you've had to endure in order to press forward this whole agenda. What, what has driven and motivated you both personally to devote so much of your careers to investigating the problem of too much medicine and trying to tackle it? To me it's been because um, it's obviously true and right, and because it's under-recognised. So um, the, the stuff we're, that we preach around, you know, effectiveness of, of this procedure or, or that intervention, um, it, the evidence is pretty clear. Um, but the reason why I push it is because that's not understood. It's not understood by and large by the public, and it's certainly not understood by a lot of the practitioners who are doing those procedures. In the popular press and in a lot of medical conferences, all we talk about is the uh, how good medicine is and how it's all wonderful and, and everything's great, and you open up the newspaper and you hear about the, the latest uh, uh, drug or miracle cure, and you're not hearing about uh, the problems. So to me, it's kind of like 
to address that and bring us all back, uh, uh, you know, to the centre ground where we should be. And for me, I didn't start off with any specific agenda. I mean, I thought I thought Pyrupasi probably worked, but we needed to prove it in a trial. And and so for me, it's been that I keep doing trials that turn out that whatever I'm interested in studying actually doesn't work. And so and so I've really fallen into the problem that that people are not really trusting the evidence even though it's right there in front of their eyes and the second thing that that really pushes me is the harms that I see I've been in I've seen people have become uh, paraplegic from veroplasty I've seen um, people die from arthroscopy and that's what really drives me is that is that we're harming people um, with things that don't actually work in the first place we're covering some pretty controversial topics here and we should just make it clear that these are our views, the views that you're listening to are the, uh, the views of the people uh, that, are, that are speaking. They're not the views of the organisations we work for, Cochrane, BMJ, Bond University, whatever it is. And, I mean, that's an important point, I think, when we're, when we're delving so deeply into these some of these con- controversies. But let's just move towards the end of this interview and talk about what others might do because I think there's, you know, thanks to a lot, a lot of the work of people like yourselves, thanks to the work of um, a, a, a lot of people around the world, this issue of overuse is becoming more widely appreciated. But it's not really clear yet what we can do. So so what do you think people can do, whether they're doctors listening, other other researchers listening, uh, with their students or professors, what can they do to make healthcare safer but also more sustainable? I think there's lots of things that people can do and, and one of the reasons we wrote the book was to just be a little bit more sceptical, to, to stop and think about, well, what is the evidence that, that the benefits outweigh the harms? Uh, and, and so there are lots of so that's what clinicians can do. Um, I think the pub, I, I don't, we don't want to stop people trusting doctors or healthcare, but we just want people to ask more questions. Uh, and I think then there's a lot that we need to do that health policy needs to drive. We need to stop uh, introducing treatments before they've been proven to work. And that's something that we we can't drive that that really takes um, will political will policy will um, and and I think by looking at the environmental impacts of too much medicine may help clinicians at least to see that that we're not just harming the patients in front of us but we're actually harming other people by the actions of too much medicine. Uh, and I think that we can do a lot more if we think about uh, in prevention and and also self care, uh, and and if people could be more resilient and and not go to the doctor for things that that are probably better not treated at all, I think we might be better off. Yeah, I think in general to be more scientific, and that goes for the public as well as medical practitioners, um, people need to ask questions like, what would happen if I didn't have that treatment? And a lot of people don't ask that of their doctor. It's, it, 
um, very simple questions like can you tell me what the risks or the benefits are of this procedure compared to not doing anything or compared to to a, a cheaper, safer alternative. Um, but the other thing that I think needs to be done is the whole structure of modern medicine, that the system of modern medicine that we work under, certainly in most countries, um, we use the phrase in the book that it's not fit for purpose. It's, it's intervention-centric. It's not health-centric. So it produces health care and it, um, a lot of it lives on turnover and seeing more patients and uh, ordering more tests. And um, Does that mean, Ian, in your mind, that public sector uh, health services, um, which do exist you know, in large parts of the world, are, are, are a better solution for too much medicine, that they, they're less likely to drive medical excess? Uh, yes, they are definitely less likely to drive it, but they're still intervention-centric. So the whole medical benefits scheme in Australia, which funds uh, the, the public funding of, of medical procedures, is centred on interventions. The intervention has a code and you perform that intervention and you get paid for it, regardless of how effective it is, whether the patient gets better or not. Um, it's it, it still drives interventions, unfortunately. But I'm not saying that restructuring such a system is easy. But it is a problem. But I think I think getting rid of fee-for-service would go a long way towards solving a lot of these problems. In all the cases that you've talked about, uh, one of a big, a big theme is that doctors need to be better at doing nothing, at sitting on their hands and, and, and explaining to patients that, 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 there's, that, that they're best off just letting nature take its course. How do we uh, train or educate or support doctors in, in what seems to be a very difficult thing for them to do? I, I don't think it is difficult to do. I think that doctors just need to be made more aware of it. It's an argument that I get a lot, and we'll go back to the knee arthroscopy example, is that surgeons often say to me, well, if I can't do a knee arthroscopy, what will I do instead? You know, would you have me replace their knee instead? And and I say to them, no, you just don't do anything. And and it sort of dawns on them that that's, that's a possibility. Um, but a lot of them say, oh, you can't do that, you know, because the patient wants to have it or their, their GP said that they need it. I just don't think that's true. I, I do not buy that argument because I see patients um, regularly who come in with sore knees and, a, and an MRI scan that shows a meniscus tear and they've got a bit of arthritis and they're aged 70. Um, and I, they're expecting an arthroscopy, and I say to the patient, I, "You don't, you shouldn't have an arthroscopy because it won't help you." And studies have shown that it's no better than leaving it. It's quite likely that your symptoms will settle, uh, but they may not go away completely because you have some arthritis, and and uh, having an operation may even harm you. Then the patient says, "Oh, that's good. I'm, I, then I don't need an operation. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, you've avoided me." F- you know, going through surgery. Patients don't say, oh, I demand the operation, even though you've just explained to me that it's not going to help me. But maybe then uh, what you're saying there, Ian, I think is very interesting, is, is that the intervention is the explanation and, and the and the um, procedure is the doctor's or the surgeon's credibility in giving that explanation. Uh, and, 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 and the reassurance. Yeah. And the reassurance. And and, yeah. and we talk we talk about this as as doctors doing nothing, but in fact they're doing a huge amount. 
what Ian just described is vital and and all clinicians and and all of us need to to embrace that. I was going to say that it's not really doing nothing. It, it's doing something, but it's not doing the the part that you think it is. Absolutely. So it is all about the reassurance. It's the let's wait and see what happens. Um, let's 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 just see. You know, it's it's not it's it's empathy. So it's it's. It's doing everything that Ian said in an, in, in an empathic manner. So it's all those those things that we do learn in medical school about how to communicate, uh, and it's taking the time to explain it. And I think that's part of the problem that we see is that people, particularly in general practice, don't have that time. And, and it's crucial, that time, to explain things to patients because who in their mind, mind who in their right mind would want to have something that might harm them and do more harm than good I mean once you explain that to a patient you know there's no it's a no-brainer really so I, I agree with Ian that, it, that that we just need to have more time to explain things better and I guess part of that explanation is also you know for a knee or for a, a back pain it's part of you know how to manage how the patient can self-manage um, you know do they keep active? Do they rest? Do they have physio? Do they wear a knee brace? You know, those sort of non-surgical interventional things that, that just coming from an expert or coming from a well-informed practitioner are going to really mm. help the patient manage manage their own thing as nat- and, well and, nature takes its course. And, and we're, you know, offering a review. So they're not, we're not just saying do nothing, go away. I don't want to ever see you again. It's I'll, I'll be with you. I'll help you to manage. That was Great, thank you. That was really great and um, lovely to hear you both. And uh, we hope you'll come and speak at the next Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference, which, you know, at some point we will get together. We will physically join and, and to be able to celebrate some of the successes because there have been successes, but the challenges are ongoing. I think that's obviously, um, you know, there's no doubt about that, that we've got work to do. You've got work to do. That was The Recovery, and for those who don't know, the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference was launched almost a decade ago by Fiona, myself and others around the world. Well, a big thanks to Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare's Minna Johansson and Dina Muscat-Meng for production, Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ for podcasting assistance, to sound guru Jan Mutz, and of course to our guests, Ian Harris and Rochelle Bookbinder. Feel yeah, free to uh, edit uh, out, edit me out completely. <laughs> 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 I wish we had that. I, I wish we'd recorded that comment. That's brilliant. <laughs> <pretty interesting. laughs> I didn't mean it to be brilliant. It's that would slightly <laughs> defeat the purpose of the podcast, Rochelle, but it's a good thought. <laughs> We'd like to introduce Rochelle Bookbinder and Ian Harris, but we've edited out Rochelle for the entire program. <laughs> But we're all right because Ian is completely in her, under her spell and can <laughs> only say what she tells him to say. <laughs> <laughs>